The story that we are going to be looking at today is the story of the first true Gentile recorded in the book of Acts, a man named Cornelius and his family. Now, this is a central moment, not just in the book of Acts. This is a turning point, a hinge moment in all of redemptive history of the whole Bible. It's a massive turning point. And so, Luke devotes really two chapters to telling the story, and he tells pretty much the entire story two times in detail. That tells you this is important. And so, we're going to actually don't… I always tell my students, don't roll your eyes when I say this. We're going to spend three weeks on this one story, okay? So, we're going to be… the next three Sundays, we're going to be on this one story, and I want to come at it from several different angles to try to really absorb what is going on in the conversion of the first Gentiles uh, into the Christian church. Let me… I'm going to go ahead and just read our passage, and it sort of… I'm going to… I'm not going to read the entire story, so we're going to sort of stop stop in the middle of a narrative for today's passage, but it's Acts 10, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 29, and this is the Word of the Lord. At Caesarea there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius, and he stared at him in terror and said, what is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God, and now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him, and having related everything... Uh, to them, he sent them to Joppa. It's about 37 miles away. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray, and he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air, and there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go, go down, and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you were looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man, who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guests. The next day, he rose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day, they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I too am a man. 
And as he talked with them, he went in and found many persons gathered, and he said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then why you sent for me. Because this story is so long and there's so much to talk about, my plan is to deal with Cornelius next Sunday. So if you want to know more about Cornelius the Gentile, I plan to talk about him in next Sunday's sermon. But for today, I want to focus on Peter. And I will tell you that this, this sermon deals with such a massive topic that I'm going to be uh, all over the place today. Lots of different passages from different parts of Scripture to try to make sense out of what is going on in this passage. My inkling is to say, when we read this passage, it's almost hard to know why Peter is bothered by, first of all, eating unclean foods, like, you know, uh, pork would be an obvious example, uh, shrimp, all those kinds of things that were banned in Leviticus. Why? Like, what's the big deal there? Why does Peter, why is he so adamant not to eat unclean food? Second of all, why is it unlawful for a Jew to go eat a meal with a Gentile? Why is this unlawful? Why is this against the law? Why is this such a big deal? So, if you read the Bible, if you're reading through our Bible reading plan, you know, you're going to be knocking in and you're going to find these passages, especially in Leviticus. If you've read Leviticus before, you have chapters, what is it, like 11 through 15, which deal with all these ceremonial laws. If you read Leviticus 11, it's a long chapter, and it tells you what are the animals the people of Israel are allowed to eat, and what are the animals they are absolutely not allowed to eat? You remember, it's like, if it has the, the hoof cleft in the middle and it chews the cud, you can eat that. But if it has the cleft hoof but it doesn't chew the cud, that's unclean to you. Do not eat it. If it has a cleft hoof but, doesn't, but does chew the cud, that's unclean for you. If it's an animal, like a bird that eats other animals, then that's unclean to you. Uh, bats are unclean to you. Uh, anything dwelling in the water that does not have, uh, you know, scales and fins is unclean to you. If it only has one, it's unclean to you. It has to have both. I mean, it goes on and on and on, and we read this today, and we're going, this is why many good-intentioned Bible reading plans through the year die a hard death in Leviticus. Have you ever been there? You know, you, you, you hit this part, and you're like, I don't know what to do with this. It goes on for chapter after chapter. I mean, if you think about it, much of Exodus 21, all the way through the end of Exodus, all the way through Leviticus, all the way through the much of Numbers is dealing with these kinds of things, and, and we often scratch our heads, especially as American Christians in this century, we're going, what do I do with this? And then you think you just, you found your way out, you know, it's Numbers, we're getting to the promised land, and then Deuteronomy means Deuteronomos, second law, Moses just tells the law all over again in Deuteronomy, and there's a lot of these rules repeated in Deuteronomy, and you're like, wow, what, what do I make of all this? So, I think that today's sermon, it may, it may feel like it takes a little work to hang with this topic, but I, I do think this will help all of us read our Bibles better, especially the Old Testament. I think this will help us uh, in that difficult task. At least parts of the Old Testament can be challenging to us today. So, let me just kind of start with a few broad things. And I'm going to hang the whole sermon on just two broad points. So, if you want, you can jot these down, at least keep them in your mind. Very simple. Number one is the law of Moses. Number two is the law of Christ. The law of Moses and the law of Christ. The law of Moses is for national Israel in the Old Testament or the Old Covenant. The law of Christ is for us believers in the church in the New Testament, the New Covenant. So, what, what are these things? How do we understand this? 
Well, the, the law of Moses, this is a, a, fascinating, a fascinating topic to think through. The, the law of Moses is interesting. What was God's purpose for the nation of Israel? If you think about it, the nation of Israel is almost like Adam part two. You ever think about this? So, Adam is put in a holy land, right, in the Garden of Eden, and they have a commission. They've got, does Adam and Eve, do they have food laws, by the way? Do not eat from the tree, right? So, they've got food laws, and they're, they're supposed to image God greatly, and then they're supposed to spread uh, God's glory across the earth, fill the earth, and subdue it. And what's interesting is, Adam fails in his exile from the garden, and then God chooses Abraham and his offspring, and God is going to put them in a new Eden, a land flowing with milk and honey, and they're going to have food laws, they're going to have all kinds of laws. What's happening here? So, think about this. As we looked at Exodus a year, more than a year ago, God brings Israel out of slavery, brings them out of, the, the, out of Egypt, and God brings them to the wilderness, and they get to Mount Sinai, and God gives them His law. Now, it's very important to notice this. Does God redeem Israel and then give the law, or does He give them the law and then redeem Israel? He redeems them, and then He gives them His law. Is that an important thing to know as Christians? God redeems first, and then He gives you instructions for how to live second. The Israel did not get handed the law of the 600-plus commands, and if God, God didn't say, no, if you keep these, I'll get you out of Egypt. That's not what happened. God redeemed them by sheer mercy, and then at, at Mount Sinai, He enters into a covenant relationship with them and gives them hundreds of commands. What was the purpose of those? Now, do you, do you remember Exodus 19? They get to Mount Sinai, the foot of the mountain, and what do we hear? We hear God saying, I've redeemed you, and He says, you are going to be my chosen people, a holy nation, a kingdom of priests for the sake of the world. And so, Israel was supposed to be holy or set apart from the nations. And this is where the strange laws start to make sense a little bit to us. So, Israel was supposed to morally be very different from the Gentiles. Do you remember also in Leviticus? This is like chapters 16, 17, 18, 19, 20. There's a lot of sexual ethics in there, and they name just about every kind of immoral act you can imagine. And what does God say at the end after that massive list of immoral acts, especially chapter 18? At the end, what does God say? These are what the Canaanites did in the land that you are to inherit, but you shall not be like those nations. You shall be set apart, different, holy, sanctified to the Lord, holy to the Lord. You are supposed to be a kingdom of priests to the Lord. A priest, remember, represents God to the people and the people to God, kind of like standing in the, in the middle. So, Israel was supposed to represent God's character to the nations, and God wanted Israel to remember that they were His special people, not just morally speaking, not just in terms of basic right and wrong, basic actions. He wanted God, uh, he, God wanted the people to remember that not, not just that, but what? God wanted the people to remember that they were set apart, they were holy, also when they sat down to eat and in all kinds of areas uh, of their life. So, some of the ways this would work, or some of the ways people would think about this, is that you would have essentially this idea of clean and unclean, what is holy and what is not holy. And God, to put it this way, the closer you get to God's presence, the closer you get to raw holiness, which is pure life and is absolute cleanness, but it also becomes increasingly dangerous for you and I because we are not holy and we are not clean and we are unholy and sinful. And so, the idea here is essentially the priests were holy, 
they could go into the tabernacle where God was. Israel was considered pure. The land was purified. And then beyond Israel, you had the Gentiles, the nations who were considered profane. And the idea here was this. If someone in the, in, in the nation of Israel became ceremonially impure, that was not necessarily a sin. Uh, this could happen by any number of ways. You could accidentally come in contact with a dead animal body, uh, like even a dead small animal, like an insect or something. You could, you could come in contact and become ceremonially unclean for a few hours, and you may have to, uh, you know, do some rituals, uh, be, be washed, you come back into the camp, and things of that nature. Well, w- what is all this trying to, to tell us? It, it's a symbol. Ceremonial laws were a symbol to try to tell people uh, something about what sin and what life and what death and what holiness actually are, what, what they actually are. Now, when you think about the Old Testament law, Christians have often found that it's helpful to break them down into three categories. And while these three categories are never explicitly said this clearly in the Bible, I do think this is a helpful breakdown. You may have heard of these. You've got in the Old Testament law, you've got the moral law, you've got the civil law, which is like a government, right, in the nation of Israel. You've got this, the moral law, the civil law, and you have the ceremonial law the moral, civil, and ceremonial law. And as we think through this, those categories are helpful for us in how we relate those things to us today. Now, do you know a problem that Israel has with these laws? Because I think we can relate to this. Israel oftentimes valued the outward and ceremonial laws more than the inward moral laws. So, the Pharisees would be very careful never to eat unclean food, but then they would try to murder Jesus. And Jesus says, you strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Those are both unclean, right? You shouldn't eat a gnat or a camel. And Jesus goes, okay, you're eating, you're drinking, and you see a gnat has fallen in your drink. You strain the gnat out of your cup to make sure you don't eat the gnat that's unclean, and then you turn around and morally swallow a camel that's unclean. You you guys are, he says, you're outwardly, you're cleaned up, you've got a nice whitewashed tomb, you look great outwardly, you're keeping all those ceremonial laws, but inwardly, dead men's bones. This is the continual thing. In in Isaiah chapter 1, we know the verse, come let us reason together, though your sins be like scarlet, they shall be as white as wool, though they'll be red like crimson, they shall be as snow. You remember that verse? Well, right in the context of that chapter, what was the crimson-like sin? Israel was keeping the festivals, and they were keeping the feast, the, the new moons, the monthly feast, and the Passovers. They were doing all the ceremonial stuff just to the letter of the law. But what else were they doing? Their hands were covered in blood for injustice, those who had died who were innocent. And they were, in their hearts, turning away to other gods, uh, prostituting themselves spiritually, Isaiah says, to other gods. So, do you see where the tension begins to develop with Israel? The ceremonial outward things get prized and valued, and those are fine. Jesus says you should have done those without neglecting the others. You should do all as Israel, but they would neglect the inward matters, the weightier matters of the law. Jesus called them justice, righteousness, and um, uh, integrity, doing doing what is right, uh, doing what you are called to do. Now, um, let let me give one little example from from just kind of a childhood example. Galatians 3, part of that text we read, says the, the law was a schoolmaster, um, a tutor until Christ came. It's the idea of caring for a small, immature child before reaching adulthood. So, so some of this, these symbols, these outward signs were meant to teach them spiritual, deeper truths about moral evil and moral purity. Well, just to give an example, uh, because as we get to the New Testament, some of these laws go away. They're fulfilled and they go away, and how, how can that happen? Well, uh, when, I was a, when I was a little kid, let's just say six years old, I'll pick a year, um, 
My parents had this driveway going out to the road, and my parents had, there was a line in the driveway where the concrete had been poured, a very clear line every so many feet on the driveway. And that last line before the road was a line my parents told me at a certain age, I could not cross that line. Can't cross that line. It's off limits because I was, you know, six or whatever. I don't want to get hit by a car. So there's a line in the driveway, don't cross that line. And my parents also would teach me basic things like, you know, don't lie, don't be proud, those kinds of things. Well, today I am happy to tell you I can cross that line on the driveway. I feel like it's freedom. I can just go over there. I can step over it, step back across. This is fantastic. I can do it all day long. I can go out on the road. I can take a walk in the road. It's incredible. You're welcome, everybody. That's, you, you can come to the house and do it yourself. It's, it's just liberating. It's liberating to do. But I'm still commanded to tell the truth and to not have pride and other things like that. Now, think about this. When I was six years old, Technically speaking, both of those laws were moral laws. It was immoral for me to cross that line, and it was immoral for me to lie. But you see, one of those commands is eternal and unchanging, and the other one had to do with my age and maturity. And as, as God brought to maturity and completion in Christ, some of these laws find fulfillment in Jesus and are no longer binding on us, much like me walking across that line in the driveway. I can do that now. We can eat uh, food of any kind today. We're no longer under those laws. But let's think through more carefully how we are to see uh, how this works. So, um, if you have your Bible, turn to the right to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And this is where, one of these verses where if you first read it, if you've never read it before, it just sounds like confusing. What what do you mean, Paul? 1 Corinthians 9, and look with me at verse 20. Now, Paul is a Jewish man as he writes this, which is even more shocking. Look at verse 20 of 1 Corinthians 9. Paul says, to the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. So this is where I'm getting the second point, the law of Christ. Now, do you see what Paul is doing here? If you don't see it, just flip to chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians 7, and look at verse 19. You'll get another sense of this strange idea that Paul has. 7.19, Paul says, remember, circumcision was a commanded law for men in the Old Covenant. Verse 19 of 7, for neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but keeping the what? Commandments of God. Couldn't you hear Paul's opponent saying, but that is a commandment of God. Circumcision is a commandment of God. You can't say it doesn't matter whether you get circumcised or not, it just matters that you keep God's law. And the the audience is going, Genesis 17 says a command. Every man in 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 the people of God must be circumcised. That's a command. So, Paul, do you see Paul is distinguishing certain commands from other commands? And he's saying you've got to keep some, but you don't have to keep others. Well, what what is that? And I think a good way to talk about it is this distinction between the moral, the civil, and the ceremonial laws. Now, can I tell you first why it's, this is, there's, there's also a problem with this division? There's a problem here. Technically speaking, technically, you got to, okay, listen carefully. Technically speaking, we are entirely not under the Mosaic law because that is an entire covenant structure, and we are not under that structure whatsoever. We're under a new covenant, a separate covenant. So, in one sense, 
the entire Old Testament law, moral, civil, and ceremonial are all fulfilled by Jesus, and we are now under a new uh, arrangement, the new covenant and the law of Christ. But it is still very helpful to use this three-part distinction because there are moral laws that are binding in both Testaments and are repeated in the New Testament, but civil and ceremonial laws take on a different uh, perspective. So just to keep it obvious here, moral laws would include things like basic uh, sexual morality. You've got things like don't lie, don't cheat, don't steal. You've got things like honor your father and mother. You've got uh, all that kind of stuff. Worship no other gods. Love the Lord your God. Love your neighbor as yourself. Those are all laws from the Old Testament that are repeated in the New Testament, in the New Covenant that are always binding on us today. But we also have civil and ceremonial laws. Because the church and state were married in Israel, I know that's a strange way to say it, but because the religion and the state were married, there were judicial or civil laws. This is, by the way, when you you hear the capital punishment laws in the Old Testament, uh, like, you know, people could die for one of 40-plus different sins, that is part of the civil law of how Israel as a nation punished lawbreakers. So if you say God's name in vain, you were to be put to death, which happens in Leviticus. Uh, If you broke the Sabbath, you were put to death in Leviticus. So those are laws binding under the civil law for Israel. We are not under those laws. To complicate matters further, I do believe that the capital punishment for murder is still applies today because it came before the law of Moses with Noah in Genesis 9, and it's repeated in Romans 13 with the, the, law, the, the government bearing the sword, not in vain, as a deliverer of God's judgment. So the, the one capital punishment law that for sure is still binding, I believe, is, is murder, uh, uh, deliberate intentional homicide. But beyond that, the other forms of capital punishment uh, are fulfilled when, with the nation of Israel and are no longer binding on the church today. The equivalent today would be something like excommunication from a church. So that what Paul will do is Paul will take a a quote about putting to death someone in Israel, like purge the evil person from among you, which refers to the capital punishment, and Paul will quote that verse from Deuteronomy, and what does he do? He quotes it in 1 Corinthians 5, referring to a, a member being removed from membership in the local church at Corinth. So, the laws change. Instead of execution, it's excommunication, which is a very different thing. Uh, not less serious in what it re- represents, but, but a very different thing. What about the ceremonial laws? Do they have any application today? And I would say, yes, in some way, in some way they do. Um, for instance, in 1 Corinthians 5, the same chapter, Paul says, remember you had Passover? And you get the week of unleavened bread, and you get all the yeast out, get all that, get the leaven out of the house, you make sure it's gone. Well, Paul says today in this covenant, we should keep the feast of unleavened bread. 1 Corinthians 5, 6, 7, and 8. And you go, what is, how do we do that? He says, by making sure evil and immorality is purged from us, like yeast is purged from the house. So do you see the symbol of the ceremony there with the, with the bread has a moral application today? Just as they removed yeast from bread, we remove immorality from our heart. You see? So, there, there's a sense in which Paul says we should keep the feast, but, they, but we, we keep what it represents or what it points forward to. One other application here would be laws in the Old Testament that still have a principle that apply to us today would be like, uh, you know, if you have a dangerous animal that could potentially harm someone, like back then it might be a bull, for you it might be a dog, I don't know. But if there's an animal that could potentially harm someone, you need to take parameters to make sure 
you don't harm someone accidentally through, through being irresponsible with an animal that you might own, whether it's with a farm or just in your neighborhood. Another law in the Old Testament is about putting like a little gate around the roof of your house. Do you remember this law? And the idea was, in that time, the roofs were generally flat, and you would go up on the roof uh, in the cool of the day uh, to have time to talk. And if you didn't put a little fence around the top of your roof, a neighbor not used to your roof might step off the edge and fall and be hurt or killed. And so, be wise in that. So, you can take principles from that to apply those kinds of things to us today. But I want to uh, zero in here. So, Paul says, he became a Jew to the Jews. He became like a Gentile in a sense to the Gentiles, but he never left the law of Christ. What he's saying is, Paul was willing to keep the ceremonial law if he was around a Jewish audience, not because it was a means of saving people, because he rejected that, but in order not to give offense, in order to get a hearing for the gospel when Paul was around those type of people. And when he was around Gentiles and they ate non-kosher food, Paul said, pass the bacon. Okay, Paul was fine with that. He, he had no problem bending depending on who he was talking to, but never violating the law of Christ. The moral laws he would never violate for the sake of evangelism. So, if you ever think, well, this thing is actually wrong, but I'm going to do it to try to reach somebody, don't do it. That we, we never violate the law of God and the law of Christ in order for the sake of evangelism. Uh, you, you only, uh, you can do what, you, you can disobey the civil law because we're not under that in the ceremonial law. Okay, let me uh, say a couple things here. In church history, especially since the Reformation, you may have heard about the three uses of the law from the Old Testament, and I'll just mention them quickly. It's worth mentioning them. I don't, we haven't talked about them much here at our church. So, number one, uh, the first use of the law is called uh, just like restraining sin in the society. Uh, it's kind of like a common grace. Uh, R.C. Sproul just said this is like if you, uh, the speed limit is not from the Bible, but if you have a speed limit, say it's 55 mile an hour speed limit, uh, the average person might break that speed limit, they might go 65, but they're less likely to go 85 or 95 because the speed limit restrains uh, behavior. And so God's law in a society or in a group can have a restraining effect, even if it hasn't transformed someone, it can, it can constrain outward behavior. Uh, example would be, it's kind of like putting a cage around a lion and there's a lamb just outside the cage. The cage can keep the lion from eating the lamb, but it can't make the lion not want to eat the lamb. And the law can have a restraining effect, even if it, ha even if it hasn't changed the heart, because the gospel changes the heart. Number two, the law is meant to show us our sin and to lead us to Christ. That's all over the Bible, Paul's letters. Galatians 3, the, school, the, the, the law was our guardian to lead us to Christ, and it, it imprisoned everything under sin that when Christ came, we might be justified by faith. So, the law is meant to show us our sin. Let me just make a little application here. In evangelism, and I'm not saying this is the only way you do this every time you do evangelism, but in evangelism, the law is a significant part of evangelism because the law is what comes before the gospel makes sense. Why do I need a forgiving grace of God if I'm not that bad. I'm basically a good person. I don't try to hurt anybody. You know, I, I, you know, I pay my taxes. I'm nice. I try to obey the laws. I haven't murdered anybody. I haven't done anything crazy. I'm, I'm a good person. I'm decent. I'm, I'm a decent person. Is that what most people believe about themselves? Is that what we used to believe probably about ourselves? And becoming a Christian, one of the biggest transformations is when the law of God breaks through and shows you how desperately sinful you are. This is a moment that you're on the verge of becoming a Christian, 
when you thought you used to have, you know how with the, with the earth, the, the crust of the earth is very, very thin, and then everything in the middle, whatever, whatever all is going on there is really just the massive core of the earth where it gets increasingly hot and all those things. Well, the, the crust of the earth is in, incredibly small, like, like almost like the peel on an apple compared to the rest of the earth. It's just tiny. Most people think that their sin is like the peel on the apple like the crust on the earth, just a tiny periphery. I've got a few little problems. Yeah, sometimes I lose my temper. Okay, yeah, maybe I've done this too much or a little much of that, but basically I'm a good person. My core is good. The periphery, I've got a few flaws. And God it loves us enough to give us His law, especially the moral law, so that we can, like James said, see our face clearly in the mirror of the law. You know what that means? That means when you wake up in the morning, you need the mirror not so you can be impressed, but so that you can not be embarrassed when you go outside. You look in the mirror, you're like, holy cow, this is not good. What, what can we do to fix this problem that I see looking back at me? The mirror shows you your flaws, right? We don't know. I mean, if you look in the mirror primarily for admiration, good for you. <laughs> but I, that is probably not the primary purpose for the mirror. We look in the mirror to fix what's wrong, right? You see the problem. Oh, there's something stuck in my tooth. Oh, great. I, was, I didn't know that was there for two hours while I was talking to people today. There's a big piece of, there's a, yeah. So, you, you just, so the, the, the mirror shows us our flaws. How is God's law like a mirror? We look into the moral law of God and we see what we should be like, and suddenly we realize the gap that exists between me right now and God's standard for me. And the gap seems to grow the more we study it, because the gap is literally infinite. The debt we owe God is infinite. How far we fall short is infinite. And so, a sign that someone is beginning to be ripe for the gospel is the law of God is starting to bother them, and they're starting to feel the weight of their sin. And they'll, they'll say things like, I never thought of myself as that bad. Now I feel like there's evil in, my, in the core of my being. From my heart is coming this evil. It's not around me. It's not an excuse. It's not someone else's fault. It's my fault. And I'll just tell you, it is, it is the default setting of your heart and mind from birth to justify our sin and to blame it on other things. It is amazing how good we are at rationalizing our sin and then getting really mad at the guy who cut you off on the way here, right? We don't, we don't justify his sin. It's like, he, where are the cops? Get that guy right now. That's a, we don't justification of his sin. It's just like, that guy is a jerk. But then, oh yeah, I'm not supposed to, we're, we'll go to church, we straighten ourselves up when we get to church. Oh yeah, bless the Lord, come into the church, bless the Lord. You see a guy really mad at a guy on the road. So, th that, the other thing is though here, we want to blame ourselves for our sin. We want to actually see what's wrong with us and take the blame. So, Spurgeon is a great example. I mentioned his conversion recently, but let me mention something. Spurgeon spent several years before he became a Christian, several years in his teenage years. I think he was 16 or so when he became a believer. During those years, Spurgeon said, the Ten Commandments were like, were like a plow pulled by ten horses. He said that were ripping up my soul and showing me how deeply evil and flawed I was. He said, I, was, I, I knew I was going to be lost, like Scott was saying. I knew I was on my way to destruction. And he said he was under that state for years until finally the gospel became clear to him, and he embraced Christ, and he was forgiven. So, if the law of God is bothering you or an unbeliever that you know, that is a good sign. You know, okay, you know, we, we have this tendency, we, we live in a therapeutic, I want positive happiness thoughts, internal well-being thoughts and feelings inside of me, and anything that attacks my emotional well-being is evil. 
well, then the law of God doesn't seem very nice, does it? Because the law of God shatters my sense of self and happiness. It just shatters it. And so, if we think that the ultimate good for someone is their internal feeling of being a good person, and like, I feel good about myself, if that's what's ultimately good for them, the gospel's not going to make a lot of sense. But we need to redefine what is good. What is good is seeing my own failure, my need for Christ, and embracing Christ. The third use of the law is that the moral laws of God are guidelines for Christians today. They give us moral parameters wherein we can live today. So, don't commit adultery is still there. Don't commit adultery. That gives you a guideline. And don't lie. Don't covet. Don't steal. These are guidelines like railroad tracks. And an important point with that, train tracks, I know there are some exceptions, but let's not mention the exceptions. Train tracks do not uh, give the train the fuel, the, the power to go. I know there are some that do, so we'll act like those don't exist right now. But just normal train tracks don't give the train the power to go forward. The train has to have its own engine in order to go forward, but the tracks guide the train. So think about this. The law of God is the tracks. The moral law of God are the tracks of how you should live your life, but the fuel comes from the grace of Christ in the gospel through the promises of God. Those things fuel our heart with a love for God, and then the law of God gives us the guidelines of how we are to live and how we are to, to go about our life. If you're, you, know, you can go look at the end of Romans 13. Paul says, he just starts quoting the Ten Commandments, a lot of them, and says, this is all fulfilled by one command, love your neighbor as yourself. The law of love is the law of Christ, guided by the Old Testament. Now, there are a lot of passages we could still go to. I'm going to just mentally right now remove half of them. Doesn't that feel good? That feels good. So, I'm just going to take a… But I want to look at several passages before we are done here. Let's start with Mark 7. And you, you can leave wherever you're at right now. Just go to Mark 7. And I want you to see how Jesus talks about some of these ceremonial laws, these laws that defile you. If you break them, they can make you defiled or unclean. And Jesus uses that word defile uh, five times in this short passage and gives us a, a better understanding of what to do with this. So, Mark 7, verse 14, and He called the people to Him again, Jesus did, and said to them, hear me, all of you, and understand, there is nothing outside a person that by going into Him can defile Him. That would be news at the time he said that. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. Now, pause there. Do you already see Jesus is redefining the purity laws right in front of our eyes? He just took over a thousand years of ceremonial laws where they could be defiled by eating bacon, right? They could be defiled by unclean food. And Jesus goes, that does not defile you anymore. I'm changing this. Now, defilement is what comes out of your heart. So, the purity laws were always pointing to moral evil at the, at the ultimate end. Look at verse 17. When He had entered the house and left the people, His disciples asked Him about the parable, and He said to them, then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled? Thus He declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, 
murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness, all these things come from within and they defile a person. Now, do you see here, Jesus is taking the purity laws and He's applying them morally now, not ceremonially. Do you follow that? He's saying the food is not the point. The point now in Christ is our heart. And can I just say, reading a list of, I think it's about 12 different things He mentions there, I mean, that's pretty depressing. They call these vice lists in the Bible, just these lists of sins. I just want to say one other thing about this therapeutic stuff, you know, this idea of I just want to feel good about myself. Jesus doesn't borrow our modern therapeutic language to describe the defilement of sin. He doesn't say, well, you know, I'm just kind of… And I'm not saying it's wrong to use this ever, okay? But just let's, be, let's think about our use. I, I use this language. People say, you know, I fell into a certain sin, which sounds like I was just walking mind of my own business, and there was, a, there was a, you know, I didn't see it. I just fell in. You know, I, I'm not the guilty party. Some, some crazy person left a hole in the ground. I just fell into it. I, I, I'm not really guilty. It's just I fell into sin. Or, you know, I'm just kind of struggling with blank. Or, you know, uh, you know I, there, there's something that happened to me when I was a child, and that's really why I've been doing this thing. Now, now listen, before anyone throws something at me here, I'm not saying that those things don't matter or not worth talking about or thinking through. But do you see what we start to do in a therapeutic world? We start talking like sin is, again, outside of the heart, and it's something that came at me. It's something that got me. It's something I fell into. It's something that I'm struggling with. It's something that it's because this person did this thing to me that I'm doing this thing now. And, uh, you know, we use the word addiction sometimes, and I'm not saying addictions don't happen. But listen, even in addiction, there's a deliberate choosing of sin even in the addiction. And yet we will oftentimes try to psychologize the language of sin to say, I have the disease of the addiction to blank. And we don't want to say, I love my sin so much I can't stop. Nobody says that. N nobody says, my heart wanted lust and I chose deliberately to indulge it for an extended period of time in my own heart deliberately. Nobody talks like that. No one says, I wanted to get by with easier work so I lied to my boss to get out of something I didn't want to do. No, people say, we had, a, we had a miscommunication at work. My boss just, we had a miscommunication. You mean you intentionally deceived your boss to get out of something? Now, do you see here? Even talking this way probably makes some of us uncomfortable because we have been taken by the therapeutic movement to say, I'm really the victim here. It's y'all's fault, not my fault. It's somebody else's fault, not me. And Jesus will not have that. Jesus says, no. Do you want to know your heart? You want to talk about defilement? It's not about food. What comes, what, your, your sin comes from within you, with my sin from within me. Let me just read it one more time. Verse 20, he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him, for from within, out of the heart, the very core of who we are, that's the core come evil thoughts, sexual morality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. There was a, I won't say the person's name, it's not the point right now, but there was a, a, a Christian leader, not the one I mentioned more recently, but another, another Christian leader who fell into some pretty public scandal and sin recently. And the, when this person put out a statement about what they had done, and it, was, it included pretty intense sexual morality and pretty horrible stuff, when, when it came out that this was true, go read the statement, go, go listen to how the person talked about it. It was all couched in, I'm kind of the victim here, and really my wife is the real problem, and like really this other thing happened, and you know, and I, I made a mistake, but you know, I, you know, 
let us be aware, and I'm not, my point is not to blame those people right now. My point is to say, this is very real. We need to confront ourselves in the mirror and see who we are and see our desperation for God's grace and turn to Him for help and say, God, I don't need like a little bit of an external change. I need a heart transplant spiritually. I need you to take out a heart that loves evil and give me a heart that loves you and then fill me with your spirit so that I can be clean truly from the inside out and begin stumblingly but truly to follow you and to obey your commands. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 9 to the right. I've got just a couple minutes left. As you are turning to Hebrews chapter 9, let me just mention something else here. So, we're, we're in Acts, remember? Luke wrote Luke and Acts. In the Gospel of Luke, and I first heard this from another pastor, Luke in chapters 5 and 8 has Jesus approaching a leper, a woman with an issue of blood, and a, a dead child, okay? And He's going to be bringing healing in all three situations. Now, if you know the ceremonial law, example would be Numbers chapter 5, the first few verses, what you hear is this. Um, if you touch a leper, you're defiled, get the leper out of the area. Number two, if there is any kind of uh, reproductive fluid, whether male or female, that person also needs to be removed from the camp and purified. Don't touch them, whether male or female. Number three, if there's a dead body, don't touch it. You'll become impure. Remove them from the camp, okay? That's in Numbers 5. Sounds so strange to us today. And then Luke has what? In Luke 5 and 8, what happens? Jesus confronts all three of those, a leper, a woman with an issue of blood, and a dead body. And think about this. As Jesus walks up to the leper, the leper says, if you are willing, make me clean. And Jesus begins to reach out His hand. Now think with the ceremonial law. Anyone around Jesus is screaming, whether internally or externally, Jesus, do not touch the man with the skin disease. If you touch him, you'll become unclean. And Jesus reaches out and touches this leper who has not been touched by anyone, no doubt, in a period of time. And instead of Jesus becoming defiled, the leper becomes clean. Then Jesus goes down, the woman with the issue of blood. Whoever she touches right now for those 12 years becomes ritually defiled. She comes up and touches the hem of the garment. If anyone would have seen her and known her about to touch Jesus' garments, they would have yelled at her, said, get away from him. Do not touch him. You'll defile him. And the second she touches Jesus, power goes out from him. Jesus doesn't become unclean. She becomes clean. Then at the end of that story, he turns around. The, the, you know, Jairus is there. His daughter is sick. Turns out he just found out she died, the 12-year-old girl. Jesus says, it's not too late. He goes into the house, takes everyone out, he shuts the door, and Jesus gets down next to the bed, and his disciples standing there are probably thinking, Jesus, don't touch her body. If you touch her dead body, you'll become unclean. And Jesus touches her and says, arise. Jesus doesn't become unclean. She becomes alive and clean. Now, do you see how Jesus is fulfilling the ceremonial law and doing something far better than the ceremonial law could ever do? Look at Hebrews 9 verse 13. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons, impurity, with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, that's Old Covenant, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? 
Let me read that one more time. That is just too good. For if the blood of of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Maybe in this room, you have been in this place where you say, I feel spiritually stuck. I cannot move forward. I've been trying all these external changes to my life, all these external things, and nothing seems to be doing anything in my heart. I would say, listen, the blood of Christ is free and available because it cost everything to Jesus. It costs nothing to you. If you will turn from sin and trust in Jesus, turn from sin and embrace Jesus, you will be pure, not outwardly and ceremonially down to your conscience, something that the blood of the bulls and goats could never do in the Old Testament, Jesus can do right now because His blood can wash away sin down to the core, and you can be left with a clear conscience, pure before God. You know, there have been some people who have been, uh, because of immoral actions in their life, have felt shameful, have felt impure, have felt defiled, have felt unclean, and these people don't know what to do. They just feel dirty. They feel, they feel, they feel immoral. They feel uh, unaccepted and shameful. And Jesus says, I can wash that pure. I can get rid of all of that. You will be as pure as the snow when the, the, the Lord Jesus has worked in your heart to change you. And the very last verse is the Hebrews 13. Just turn there as well. This theme runs through a lot of Hebrews, but I'll just read this one last part. Listen again as these two ideas of the Old and New Covenant are picked up by the author of Hebrews. Hebrews 13, verse 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do not be led led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned, because they're unclean afterwards, they're burned outside the camp, outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through His own blood. How can Jesus make impure people like you and I pure because Jesus was treated like He was defiled. He was cast outside the camp. He died forsaken by God. He was taking on our blemishes and impurities so that we now in Christ can be clothed with His purity and His perfection. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, uh, there's a whole lot here still to study and to think more about, but I pray that at least some of these basic ideas could be plain to us. First, we are so thankful, as Peter says, that we are no longer under this yoke of the old covenant law that neither Peter says he or his fathers could properly bear. Thank you for the freedom that we have in Christ from these ceremonial laws. But God, thank you for the way, much more importantly, that they are fulfilled in your Son, Jesus. Thank you that although we are defiled in our sin, impure from our heart out to our actions and our thoughts, thank you that in Christ the blood of Jesus can cleanse us from sin and to purify our consciences in a way that no animal sacrifice ever could have done. 
God, if anyone does not know you in this way, in the sound of my voice, I pray that even now you would cleanse them from their sin and purify them and make them new in Christ. And for those who already know you, God, I pray we would not despise your law, that we would say with David, oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation day and night because in the law is reflected your character, that you never lie, that you are faithful, that you are good, that you have no other gods before you, that you alone are the one true God. Help us to honor you and to begin to, as best we can by your grace, obey your law. And when we stumble and fall, like James says, we all stumble in many ways. Help us to get back up, to repent, and to keep going in our walk with you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.